When the comedy writer David Quantic was a child, there were a number of occasions when he found himself at a moral fork in the road. He could be the oppressor or the child who stood shoulder to shoulder with the underdog. On each occasion, he opted for being the oppressor. First, there was the school playground. There was a boy and... His family, I think now, well, obviously they were quite devout Catholics. He'd come to school with ashes in his hair, I presume around Lent. I'm not an expert on this. And yeah. we weren't evil kids. We didn't beat him up for it, but it was clearly very odd. But one day, for reasons I do not understand, because this was Devon in the 1960s, he came to school in a kilt. What and did he do? Well, nothing happened until break time. And all I can remember is the entire school, and I'm not exaggerating everybody chasing him round the playground. It was like a comet. He was the head of the comet and the school was the tail. There wasn't a single child in the school who said, no, I'm, I'm standing with the underdog. When you see an entire school running after a boy in a kilt, you are going to join in. And he must have been terrified. It was mass hysteria. And do you remember feeling bad about it? I remember feeling that something was wrong because, you know, I'd been bullied and I hadn't been a popular child I mean, that must have been the reason why you joined in. If you did, it (laughs) took the heat off you. I think there was a large element of that. And then David grew up and went to university. This was the early 80s, late 70s. It was very much the age of the left-wing student union. It was very feminist. It was very right-on. We occupied things. And I was the student union DJ. And I used to go out and buy the new singles by the Modettes and the Au Pairs and the Gang of Four... It was quite a right-on disco, but it was just the times as well. It was the NME had all this stuff, and John Peel played it. So that was the vibe. But there was also a rock society. People who didn't like John Peel music. They liked Iron Maiden and Leonard Skinner and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, most of which bands I now like as well and probably did like all the time. And they wanted to have a disco, and there was a discussion about it at a higher level. And I think the discussion ended by saying, we can't stop them. That was the friendly atmosphere. We can't stop these awful, sexist, misogynist, women-hating teenage boys from playing their awful music and dancing to it. But we can make it bad for them. And I'm still genuinely ashamed of my involvement because they said to them, you can do it, but you have to give the records to David to play. And I went along with this, probably... Well, and you had to then decide whether each record was was appropriate. Well, I think that was the idea, but I was too embarrassed and I didn't know half the records anyway. But no, I was very much a collaborator in this awful kind of Eastern Bloc censorship fest. And, yeah, the entire evening was very bleak for the people of the Rock Society as they handed me Stairway to Heaven and I put it on. So you decreed that one was all right? Well, I didn't really do any decree. I did play everything that they gave me. But it was just a horrible atmosphere. The bloke wasn't enjoying it. The purpose was for the Rock Society's life to be made as unpleasant as possible, to discourage them from doing anything as bad as playing Motorhead and ACDC records again. David, that's terrible that you did that. I know. I haven't thought about it in depth for a while, but, yeah, if I ever see this person again, I will apologise. 
You know, what terrifies me about, well, witch hunts is that they can come from nowhere and people like me who think that we're fairly nice are very easily swayed. David's right. However independently spirited we believe we are, time and again we go with the herd. It isn't always a negative thing. Sometimes the herd has the best intentions. Take something that recently happened to the comedy writer, Graham Linehan. I went to see a band the other night, I went to see the Arcade Fire, who were on the other side of the city to me. They were in um, the O2, and it was a snowy night. And um, I kind of thought, it was a bit of an adventure for a middle-aged man, you know? But I was immediately kind of struck by how ridiculous I was because I had this big coat that made me look like a huge tortoise or something, you know? And I had this new hat with those ear flaps pulled down low and my scarf. So I said to my wife, take a picture of me. And she took a shot of me. Uh, and I tweeted it along with the words, I'm going to see the Arcade Fire. I'm so brave or something like that, you know. So, you know, I thought that was funny. And in that time, I thought of another joke, which was after that, I could send a tweet that just said, fallen over, not going. Because I thought the image of myself in that coat lying on the ground would be funny. And also the fact that it came so soon after my brave tweet, uh, it would elicit a laugh, right? So you sent it. So I sent that to... presumably then chuckled to yourself. Chuckled m- mightily. Then I got on my train and I thought of another line. <laughs> this was probably the, the line I shouldn't have done, which said, lying on ground outside house, f- wife's phone keeps going to message, fingers going numb, spelt N-U-M, right? I sent that off. <laughs> chuckled. Chuckled to myself. But then I thought, you know what? People might take that one seriously. So I'll send a final one that will show it's a joke. So I tweeted ops, right? What? Ops. O-P-S. O-P-P-S. Ops, meaning oops. I mean, I would think ops in that context would be like your kind of death rattle. <laughs> but why would I tweet my death rattle? <laughs> well, why would you tweet lying on the floor? Well, exactly, but you were, you were one of the people who was worried about it. But anyway, I sent off ops thinking, OK, that's that. No one will take it seriously now. And then I went into a tunnel uh, on the train. For like and an hour. 40 minutes. And I got off the train, and as soon as I got a signal, my phone rang, and it was my wife. And she was saying, I've just been up and down the street looking for you. I've had three people call me asking if you were okay. And I was saying, what? No, it's a joke. It was a joke. I was tweeting ops. (laughs) You know? I don't think ops went through. I looked in my drafts folder. Ops was still there. So it hadn't gone through. But what had come through were, like, messages from my brother-in-law, my, you know, people I barely knew. Me. John Ronson, yeah. It was, like, uh, I don't know, 20 direct messages from people. There was a lot of concern for me, which was very nice to know. My one said, um, seriously, Graham, are you okay?" Yes, that's right, that's right. And, you know, so then I had to go through the thing of apologising and one person said, don't ever do that again, that wasn't in the least bit funny and all this sort of thing. And all this happened in 40 minutes, you know? So sometimes the herd can be delightful, but more often than not, not. Take the story of Meredith Moran. In the early 1980s, Meredith was working as an editor for a feminist researcher who was trying to compile statistics about child sexual abuse. 
The woman I worked for did a study in San Francisco and they knocked on something like a thousand doors. They were doing surveys asking women mostly if they had been sexually abused as children. They were just going door to door? Yeah. And how many and of asked, the women said that they had been abused? Well, the statistics she came out with was that one in three American women had been abused as a child. And I read the statistics that the researcher was coming up with as I was editing her book, and I kind of slid from a starting point of thinking what everybody thought in those days, which was incest was a you know made-for-TV movie kind of one-in-a-million thing. And by the end of the process, of course, I thought that you know, every man was, if not a molester, a potential molester. And after I finished editing her book, I became a fundamentalist, an evangelist, certainly, a campaigner to bring to light this horrible fact. Meredith started writing magazine articles about the subject, meeting victims and abusers. I was in a therapy group for men who had been arrested and convicted of child sexual abuse, and one of the men started talking about how when his daughter had her first boyfriend, he couldn't stand the jealousy and hit the boyfriend and was just raging that his daughter was seeing another man. There was something about this man that reminded Meredith of her own father. As he was describing his own reaction, I remembered a scene with my father and my first boyfriend when my father was screaming at him to go away and leave me alone and pushing him out of the house. And all of a sudden I had this thought that this had happened to me. My worldview shifted from a view of the human race as fundamentally good to a view of the male gender as fundamentally evil. I began to have nightmares, getting messages that I was one of the people who had been molested. For example, I grew up in New York City and there was one dream in which I was running through Central Park and there was a sign that said, only people who were molested as children can run in Central Park. (laughs) God, you like that woman from The Crucible. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty hairy. It's horrific. Mm. Yeah, the whole thing. If things weren't fraught enough inside Meredith's mind, into this tinderbox came a book. It had just been published. It was called The Courage to Heal. It was a manual for survivors of child sexual abuse. It became the Bible that everyone I knew, including myself, were toting around to our therapy sessions and checking off items on the checklists and so on to see if we had been abused. How high did you score on the Courage to Heal checklist? Oh, gosh. Well, let's just say I used a lot of Post-its up. What kind of stuff? All kinds of things ranging from things that were on my list, like fear of the dark, insomnia, a failure to bond with mother... And then, you know, there were overarching statements in the book like, if you're reading this book, you were probably molested. For the next six years, she never mentioned her suspicions to her father, which was very awkward at family gatherings, she says. What was really excruciating for me was having my kids spend time with him and to watch my father with these young kids and be suspecting that he might hurt them. So I made rules right from the start that I wouldn't leave my kids alone with him overnight. You know, everybody was asking why not, and I didn't want to say. Someone, she doesn't know who, 
finally told her father that Meredith had been telling people that he had sexually abused her. And how did he respond? In a totally unexpected and quite heartbreaking way. He actually called my mother to ask her if she thought it might be. Well, that he might have done it and forgotten. Yeah. It was so widely believed that not only could we forget traumas from our childhood, but we absolutely did. That the nature of trauma was to cause the memory to be lost as a protective thing. And then, for the next eight years, despite her father's pleading, Meredith broke off all contact. Did it just slowly dawn on you that you hadn't been molested at all? Yes, you know, it took about, say, maybe two years of starting to wonder not only about my father, but about all these women around me who, some of whom were starting to realize that their quote-unquote memories were fabrications. Although you can't be blamed too much because, I mean, somebody said to me... Oh, I love to hear that. (laughs) Well, someone said to me the other day that you can't trust any memory that you have. Just don't trust any memory. And it's true that I have loads of memories of things that just can't have happened. Like this incredibly exotic boat trip that I took by myself when I was about Mm -hmm. five. That wouldn't Mm -hmm. have happened. So you can't really be blamed. It just goes to show that we're, we're victims of our memory. Well, it goes to show that we need to be really careful about using our rational brains to sort of create some adult supervision for our imaginations and our memories. Mm -hmm. This is such a terrible story that you tell. And I wouldn't be surprised if people listening to this will be feeling furious with you. It won't surprise me at all because I had an excerpt from the book on Salon.com a couple days ago and I've never seen hate mail like this. You know, to be completely honest, you know, I think what Mm -hmm. you did was unthinkably terrible. But then to realize that what you did was terrible and write a a mea culpa about it, I think, is is great. Well, so do I sort of average out on your scale of humanity at around five, would you say, on a scale of ten? In my moral compass. In your moral compass, exactly. Due north, due north. (laughs) Due north, well done. I'll I'll take that. Have you ever apologized to your father? I have apologized to my father repeatedly over the years. And when we first reconciled in 96, after our eight years of estrangement, I apologized. And he basically let me know that a condition of his accepting me back into the fold was that we wouldn't talk about it ever. And about three years ago, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So I asked him if we could have a conversation about it. So I got a chance finally about two years ago to make a full apology. He is quite disabled, but also our relationship is better than it's ever been. And he himself says he credits the Alzheimer's for that. Well, because he's forgotten. (laughs) Well, you know, I have two kids, too, who are in their 30s now. And I think if I could get just a a few brain cells of memory removed from their childhoods and adolescences, I'd probably like them a lot more, too. Meredith Moran is the author of My Lie. A true story of false memory. Mark Maron is an LA stand up comedian who does a podcast from his garage called WTF. 
Every week he interviews other comics and they share stories of the pain and neurosis of their comedy lives. One day, Mark decided to get on a comic called Carlos Mencia. You know, he sees himself as a, a provocative ethnic comic and, you know, he likes to push buttons. He's a very aggressive comedian. He struts and owns a stage. And is he like a kind of household name in America? Uh, he had a show on the air here on Comedy Central uh, called The Mind of Mencia. And he also became a household name in more, you know, comedy fan circles as being a, a thief and a plagiarizer, and that's why he became notorious here. Would people talk about him backstage at comedy clubs? Oh, yeah, certainly in the comic community, and he was a tremendous villain because that is about the most heinous thing you can do is take somebody's material. Mark wanted Carlos Mencia on his podcast to ask him how he was dealing with the burden of being so universally hated. But when Mencia turned up, he was delightful. He was funny and moving, talking about growing up Honduran in a Mexican part of East L.A. I had no dreams of being a stand-up. I grew up in East L.A. where, in a classroom, a friend of mine was asked by the teacher, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he was like, um, I think I want to be the president of the United States. And the teacher went... You're going to be a mechanic. You can't be president. There's going to be no Mexican president. <laughs> yeah. Who else? And we're all like, uh, mechanics? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I grew up in that environment. Yeah. I'm afraid to fail, bro. I'm afraid to suck. I'm, you know, since, look, I'll, I'll tell you, it's funny. I'm going to therapy. Really? Because I want to change that part of myself of doing everything out of fear as opposed to doing things out of love and, and caring I can track it down to a point in time in my life. I was a little kid living in East LA on Bonnie Beach. Yeah. There was a guy walking down the street. I knew him. Yeah. He lived around the block from me. Yeah. He's huffing, right? So he's spraying paint into a paper bag yeah. and sniffing it. Yeah. He walks up to me and he said, hey, man, where do I live? Where the fuck is my house, man? And I remember going, bro, it's around the corner over there. It's the pink one. And I walked him to his house. Yeah. I'm four. And from that point in time in my life, I can honestly say that everything has been, I don't want to be like that. Carlos Mencia was mesmerising on the programme. He sounded passionate and sympathetic. More sympathetic, maybe, than the purported ringleader of the hate campaign, the comedian Joe Rogan. Rogan's accusation was that Mencia had stolen two specific jokes, one from Bill Cosby and another from a comic named Ari Shafir. Here's this new thing. I don't know if you guys heard this. He wants to build a new wall all down the California-Mexico border. This is Ari Shafir telling the wall joke. Like a 12-foot-high brick wall. It's like three feet deep. So no Mexicans get in. But I'm like, dude, Arnold, um, who do you think is going to build that wall? This is Carlos's version of the joke. Um, I propose that we kick all the illegal aliens out of this country. Then we build a super fence so they can't get back in. And I went, um... Who's going to build it? <laughs> Joe keeps, you know, saying Carlos Mastelia, Carlos Mastelia. So then that's when the joke about the fence, which like 15 of us did, you know, yeah. the, the Mexicans yeah, building yeah. the fence. Right. So then Ari Shafir was like, you took that joke for me. You let me do a spot before you. And I did that joke. I'm like, you think I was watching you? Yeah. And at the time, somebody had recorded it with a phone and it was on the Internet. Then that became like a big, big deal. 
that video, you know, people were waiting for an opportunity. And that's what came. Just a barrage of you should die. You know, just the worst. You know, I, I come from two places around this stuff. You know, there was a time in comedy, you know, before comedians became auteurs. It was not uncommon for comics to do the same joke because they were just really the delivery system. So hackney jokes, in my mind, it's a minor crime. Were you even thinking to yourself that the guys backstage at the comedy clubs who were kind of bitching about Carlos Mencia were being unfair? Yeah. If you live in a glass house of any kind, you, you better have a, a pretty clean slate if you're going to you know, show up as the comedy police. By the end of the podcast, you really got the sense that Mark had been completely won over. Whatever anybody else thinks, you know, I work really hard at it. I believe that. Whatever you think. That's clear. Whatever you think. No one gets as successful as you are by doing anything else. You've been as honest, uh, I think, as you've been about this stuff with me here. And I've never been this honest. I've never opened up like this before. I I've never let it. anybody in like that. The one thing I know about you is that you paid your dues. You did stand-up comedy. It's all you wanted to do. You wanted to be the best at it. And, and you built the clown. You built your house. Yeah. He charmed you. Any doubts you had seemed to just vanish because he, he was authentic, talking about his tough childhood, and you can hear you melt. Yeah, okay, I melted. He was very um, diplomatic and charming. And I began to feel, well, Carlos Mencia is maybe he's kind of the victim of a bit of a witch hunt, that these comics were, like, picking on him. I agree with you. Before the interview, Mark had let it be known on Twitter that he had a potentially intriguing interview with Carlos Mencia lined up. There were a lot of excited retweets. But now, in the hours after Mencia left his garage, Mark started to get an eerie sense that all was not good. There was something too oily about it, and I felt that I, I had missed something. What were you thinking? Did you feel like you'd kind of failed? Yeah, so I, I, I definitely failed, but, you know, I could have failed quietly if I didn't have to tweet it. And, uh, yeah, I was panicking. Did you sort of feel almost as if you were in danger of becoming like kind of Carlos Mencia's apologist? No doubt. I mean, that was exactly what was uh, fueling my panic. So I call him up, you know. And Hoping I, and that really... he could just do it down the line. And it's... Yeah. And literally he said, all right, bro, my, my plane just landed. I'm at LAX. I'll, I'll come over right now. I'll be over in, you know, 45 minutes. So did and your I'm heart like, sink? Yeah, I was like, oh, man. So Mencia came back to Mark's house. He records his podcast from a garage in his garden. Mark began by asking him something he'd forgotten to ask last time. Mencia has a reputation for bumping other comics, turning up at the comedy store and asking to do a few minutes and then deliberately staying on so long the other comedians have to go home without performing. He even did it to Mark once. To Mark's surprise, Mencia didn't deny it. I'll be honest with you, man. It's my only way of dealing with how hateful. You know what I mean? So you're saying that you do it out of spite? Yeah, I do. So if what's your me. beef with me? Why'd you not teach me a lesson? Well, that's just like me being an asshole. You were making an example. When I'm on stage at the Comedy Star, and I look straight ahead, yeah, and I see one of those guys, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he's on the list after me. Fuck him. And this is where things started to get really interesting. 
Mark asked Mencia to really think about if he was a plagiarist. And there, in Mark's garage, Mencia started to think. I wish I could say, look, you know what, man? I might have taken some people's shit. And to those people, I apologize. Look, it's been going on for way too long for me to be naive about it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. He started to wrestle with himself. You know, this is who I really am was breaking down. And then it just became this weird thing where I kept looking at him and I kept thinking, like, just just confess. At this point, I would say to you, he's doing it on purpose. Now, because you, oh, you would be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you say that you know, you're sorry and you say that, you know, this makes you feel bad. But do you experience the sadness of it? I mean, you know, some people have said that you're pathological. Yeah, I experience that when I'm alone. What happens? Do you cry? Yeah, man, I get depressed and I don't leave the house. But I can't show anybody that. I love stand-up, I know, man, more I than anything in the world. I know, man. More than my wife, more than my kid. And it doesn't feel good that I know that I bumped people. It doesn't feel good that you left. Yeah. That doesn't feel good. It doesn't turn me on. It does when it's those pieces of shit. Okay. That does. Some of these guys would be happy to take my livelihood. It doesn't condone me doing the same to them by performing so long that they don't get to perform. And for that, I am sorry. And I don't want to be that person anymore. To, to anybody that feels, you know, harmed by me, I, I do apologize, man. I, you know, to you, I apologize. I mean, I just always felt like the whole world was against me, bro. You know, and, and if I if I seemingly absorb somebody's shit without knowing it, but if anybody believes that it's their joke, that that's the one joke that you think is going to take you to the top or that one joke that you think is going to get you Write on some TV, new jokes. No, man. Call me. You know what I mean? <laughs> call me and I'll drop it. He was wrestling with himself to the point where I thought he was going to cry. And I was willing to be there for him emotionally if he started crying. But he just wouldn't do it. I was trying to close the interview, and he wouldn't stop talking. I didn't know what to do. And then Mencia said something completely unexpected. On the other hand, especially comics at the comedy store who don't like me, I really want you to know this. Seriously, I have a couple of friends who want to come and beat the shit out of you. For real. And I tell them not to. I want those people to know that, despite of what you think, I, I, I have you know, stopped bad shit from happening. There, There is a line, so to speak, you know, that I won't cross. Thanks, Carlos. Oh, man, I, you know, I don't even know where to, to begin. Thanks for your concern for me that you're willing to kill some people on my behalf. But you know what? Don't do it because that's the kind of guy I am. I'm going to stop you from hurting people. <laughs> and what's happened to him now? Is he still headline at big comedy shows? He's still out there working, and I think he might have a podcast. But the only thing I do know is that he's no longer bumping people. And so it was that the witch hunt against Carlos Mencia put the cattle back in the pen where the cattle belonged and order was restored. <laughs> 